Good morning, Redemption. My name is Nolan. I have the privilege of bringing God's word for us this morning. Our passage today is from Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verses 1 through 15. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? A generation goes and a generation comes, but the earth remains forever. The sun rises and the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south and goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind, and on its circuits the wind returns. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they will flow again. All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done, and there is nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It has been already in the ages before us. There is no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem, and I applied my heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under heaven. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. For I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity and a striving after wind. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. This is God's word for us today. Thanks, Noah. I look for a nobler man living in a nobler environment, a man two inches taller, living longer, gentler in mind and manners, in every way an improvement over the past. These were the words of Henry Davies, the Yale professor, in the San Francisco Examiner in the year 1900. At the turn of the 20th century, optimism in the West was at an all-time high, as the words of Henry Davies suggest. The scientific revolution was underway, electricity and automobiles were just appearing. The majority of people had high expectations for the 20th century. Even the Secretary of the Navy, John Long, held the common belief that war would be abolished in the new century, the 1900s. So would poverty and annoying bugs. Sickness, too, would be a thing of the past. New machines would make life easier and happier. So what happened in the 19th century? <laughs> Surprisingly, a hundred years later, at the turn of the 21st century, the view was not so optimistic. In fact, most social scientists have noticed a far more pessimistic feeling going into the future. The early 2000s saw the rise of the dystopian novel and movie. Maybe you've seen a few of them, right? These stories portray a scientifically advanced future 
that is distorted and less desirable. Most would say that there is a gloomy foreboding about the future. Sure, everybody's a little different, but maybe the general feeling of our society is a little bit more of a gloomy foreboding. Why the change from 1900 to 2000? Well, according to Jeff Moran, assistant professor of, of history at the University of Kansas, several things happened to dim a very once bright future. Things like two world wars, the atomic bomb, the Holocaust, and the environmental movement, just to name a few. These events were hardly on anyone's intellectual radar in 1900. But they made people question whether techni technological progress equated with moral progress. Pro technological progress made life easier, perhaps, but it could also destroy life. So are you an optimist or a pessimist about the future? Or somewhere in between? As we look at Ecclesiastes 1 today, we will see that nearly 3,000 years ago, the author of Ecclesiastes was neither an optimist or a pessimist. He was a realist. What I mean by that is he did not expect the world to get any better or any worse. He didn't expect it to change at all, but to stay the same. And if we understand his argument this morning, I think that we will see after 3,000 years of history, he was right. So let's dive into Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Last week we went through the introduction to the book of Ecclesiastes. We talked about verse 1 and the author and so forth. It's the words of the preacher. Hebrew word is Kohelet. The Greek word is Ecclesiastes. Um, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. Now, his thesis for his whole book is in verse 2. We talked a little bit about this last week, too. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. This is what it, the, the book of Ecclesiastes is about. He's going to repeat this phrase almost word for word in chapter 12, verse 8, when his words end. It's the last words that he'll speak in the book as well. So it's, it's, it's a way of saying from beginning to end, this is what the book is about. And so what he's going to do is he's going to make several observations throughout the book about vanity under the sun, vanity on planet Earth. And his first observation he makes today in verses 3 through 15. And the first observation, so, so this is kind of the, the literary way that, that Ecclesiastes sets up. A lot of times he'll make an observation and then he'll reflect upon it. So he makes this observation of verse 3, and then the rest of the verses are kind of a reflection on this observation. And the observation he makes in verse 3 is, is all work, no gain. See verse 3, what does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? Now this word gain is a business word. Probably the better word for us is in English would be profit, something left over. I'm a real estate investor, that's my business, and so when I invest money, time, and energy in a real estate deal, what I want to see at the end is ROI, right? Return on investment. I want to know that all my time, energy, and money are making something, are, are, are accomplishing something. But what Solomon is saying here is that all the labor, the toil, the work of mankind doesn't profit anything. It's all work. 
no gain. Now, he makes several reflections about that. Well, well, first of all, let me say this. What is the work that man is trying to accomplish? He doesn't answer that right away. He doesn't answer that until the end in verse 15. And this is what mankind is trying to do. This is the work that we are trying to accomplish, but we, we can't make any progress. What is crooked cannot be made straight, and what is lacking cannot be counted. Right? This is, the, this is the vain efforts of mankind. There's something crooked. We know it. We feel it. We think we should be able to straighten it out. But the harder we try, the more we work at it, it never seems to get quite straightened out. So that's the observation. And now he's going to reflect on this. All work, no gain. What is our, what are, is our experience of this? There's two results of this fruitless toil. The first is weariness in verses 4 through 8a. Right? A generation comes, a generation goes, but the earth remains forever, or the earth stays the same. The early church father Jerome said, what is more vain than this vanity, that the earth which was made for humans stays, but humans themselves, the lords of the earth, suddenly dissolve into the dust. And Solomon says, generation after generation comes, but nothing changes. Nothing changes. And then verses 5 through 8 are kind of a big chalkboard illustration of, of what he's talking about, of, of nature and what we see in nature. And it's more of a circle than a line toward progress, right? And notice all the verbs here. Notice the action words. He talks about the sun, the wind, and the hydrological system. The sun rises, the sun goes down and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north. Around and around goes the wind. On its circuit, the wind returns. All the streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they flow again. You see the words of activity, of, of, of toil, of labor, of action, of busyness, and yet nothing changes. The, the sun just keeps going around and around and around and around. The wind keeps going around and around. Streams keep going into the sea, but the sea never gets full. And so what's the conclusion of all this? All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. It's an unutterable weariness, all this bustling activity, that's the result. Now, as I said, I'm a real estate investor, and for about 11 years, my family and I lived in Milwaukee in the Sherman Park neighborhood. We lived on 47th Street between North and Center, and we were part of a group of mostly Christian people who had intentionally moved to the city, and our goal was that we wanted to try to improve the neighborhood that we were living in. And I think we all had really good and high intentions. There were, a lot, there, were, there were many things that we tried to do. Just reaching out to neighbors, trying nonprofit sorts of things. We sang Christmas carols at Christmas time. You know, and several people started different businesses. And I was one, uh, one of the real estate investors. There were several others. And you know, back in the day when you'd write a business plan, you'd have to make a mission statement. And in your mission statement, it had to be something more than my mission is to make money, right? It had to be some bigger purpose. And so our mission statement is, was, we're trying to improve the neighborhood one house at a time. It was really catchy, loved that statement. And, uh, you know, I, I was in a group of people where we really thought that, that we could improve that neighborhood. We, we had visions of in 10, 20 years that the neighborhood would improve in certain ways. And so my job was to take 
run down houses, fix them up, and either provide them as good rental properties or sell them to families who could live in them comfortably. And so, you know, had many different experiences with that. One house I remember in particular was on 47th Street, about a block away from where we lived, and I bought it as a foreclosure, really cheap, and, um, but it had great bones, you know? It was really beat up, windows broken, doors broken, walls, holes in the walls, you know, just needed everything new. So complete gut, total rehab, new kitchen, new bathroom, maybe even added a, a master suite with a bathroom in the upstairs. And I remember this house in particular because it was, it was the kind of house that I would like to live in, you know? So it was really nice. And we sold it to a, a young couple, they seemed very promising. They were down the street, so for the first couple of years, I'd, I'd walk by, say, hi, how's it going, and, and so forth. But 10 years later, I'm a, I'm a realtor, so I saw in the MLS, this property came up as a foreclosure. And I went to look at it, and it was in the same condition that it was when I first bought it. Been totally trashed. And so this was one of many experiences that helped me realize what should have been obvious in the first place, you can't improve the neighborhood through housing, right? <laughs> I mean, we all kind of know that, but for some reason I thought I could, right? There's, there's the, 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 the problems are more complex. They're deeper than just fixing up houses. But I think we all have this kind of human longing that the work that we do, the efforts that we make, will contribute to some kind, to making the world a better place, right? And we feel like, and, and my, my experience as an individual, expand that to humanity as a whole, right? To human beings as a whole. We should be able to fix the problems in our world, right? And yet, all work, no gain. And so what the, what, one of the results of that is, this unutterable weariness, right? Oh man, all that work and I, I didn't really accomplish what I was trying to do. The second result of this, this kind of toil is no satisfaction in life. Notice verse 8b, the eye is not satisfied with seeing nor the ear filled with hearing. Now satisfaction is a theme that's going to be very common in the book of Ecclesiastes. He's going to bring this up again and again, but it's a, a human trait that we can't seem to find satisfaction. That's the result of, of, you know, trying to fix things and never quite being able to do so. Like the sea that is never filled, though constantly being poured into, man has an insatiable appetite of desires that are never satisfied, even though our eyes keep searching and our ears keep listening. We keep looking and listening, but we still haven't found what we're looking and listening for. Now Solomon goes on to say part of the reason for this is that there's nothing really new. Notice what he says here in verse 9. What has been is what will be, and what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Now I think we have to be careful to understand what he's saying. Notice what has been done. There's nothing new that has been done. He's not talking about human inventions here. He's talking about human experiences, or our quality of life. And I think this is important because we keep thinking that new inventions and discoveries will advance the human race to somewhat of a higher plane of existence, 
or save us from some of the vanity of life. We keep making this mistake over and over again, especially as we make new discoveries and come up with new inventions, right? We saw this in the 1900s. That was kind of a time of optimism about the advances in technology. There was another moment of optimism in the, in the 1970s, right after we had landed on the moon. There was a high, if you study this period of history, there was a high level of optimism at that time as well. And there was a, a, a document written called the Human, Humanist Manifesto II in 1973, and the first paragraph said this, the next century can be and should be the humanistic century. Dramatic scientific, technological, and ever-accelerating social and political changes crowd our awareness. We have virtually conquered the planet, explored the moon, overcome the natural limits of travel and communication. We stand at the dawn of a new age, ready to move farther into space and perhaps inhabit other planets. Using technology wisely, we can control our environment, conquer poverty, markedly reduce disease, extend our lifespan, significantly modify our behavior, alter the course of human evolution and cultural development, unlock vast new powers, and provide humankind with unparalleled opportunity for achieving an abundant and meaningful life. Wow, that is awesome, isn't it? <laughs> I mean, aren't you excited about this? And I think that at the end there, we want to achieve this abundant and meaningful life. And, and this was the prediction for the next hundred years, seeing these, these great scientific and technological advances. Well, it's 50 years later. It's 2023, 50 years after this was written. How is it going? Do you feel like we're getting there? I think most of us would say no, right? I don't know if you heard the report last week from the CDC, but they said that three in five Teenage girls report persistent sadness and hopelessness. That's over half. And 25% report having made a suicide plan. This is an all-time high of depression and suicide among teenage girls. And what I found interesting was that most people that talk about this suggest that it is the, the new technology, the cell phones and the social media that seem to be a primary contributor to these <clears throat> high levels <clears throat> excuse me, of, of feelings of suicide and depression. This seems really odd, doesn't it? Because never in human history have women had more freedom and opportunity than they do today in America. And yet, young, young women's feelings of suicide and depression are at an all-time high. What gain is there from all of this toil that we have been toiling at? You see, all of this is very unsatisfying, isn't it? There must be something better. I think the, things that we, the thing that we learn with scientific and technological advances is that, that the more things change, the more they stay the same, right? Technology can increase the, the quantity of the things that we can do as human beings, but it can increase the quality. You know, we can travel to the other side of the world and take out our smartphone and we can dial up, I can dial up my wife or, or one of my kids and I can talk to them and see them as if they were standing right next to me. That's amazing technology. But that doesn't guarantee that they actually want to talk to me or enjoy talking to me, right? <laughs> see, science and technology improve the quantity of my communication, but it can't solve the quality 
of my communication. And so I think that's what Solomon's trying to say here. No matter what comes along in human history, it always ends in dissatisfaction. There's no satisfaction in life. Now Solomon makes a second reflection here. And he says that this evil business is given by God. Notice verses 12 through 14. I, the preacher, have been king over Israel and Jerusalem, and I applied by heart to seek and to search out by wisdom all that is done under the sun. It is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of man to be busy with. I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, it is vanity and striving after wind. Now, up to this point, Ecclesiastes might be confused with Buddhism and the circle of life, right? But here the poetry ends. Notice the poetry of this section ends and we have prose. We have Solomon, I believe, speaking directly to us. And I think this is the emphasis of this section right here. He's talking straight to us about God. Now remember, Solomon, he had an international audience, right? He spoke to other kings and wise people from other nations and other peoples, people who didn't, didn't know the God of Israel. And I think Solomon here is introducing a biblical worldview, an Old Testament biblical worldview into this broader conversation. Remember, God is the main character of Ecclesiastes. And this is where he first shows up in the book as the giver of the evil business. Now notice it says, uh, it is an unhappy, but ESV is translated, it is an unhappy business that God has given to the children of men to be busy with. Now this word unhappy is the, the Hebrew word ra, R-A, ra, it means evil. It appears 30 times in the book of Ecclesiastes, and every other time it's translated evil. I think it should be translated evil here. I think ESV is trying to soften the blow of this, but I think we really need to feel the full effect. God has given us this evil business to be busy with, right? All work, no gain. This is an evil, this Solomon's saying this is an evil business. So this is sometimes a shocker for people, even Christians, to read something like this. But this is clearly taught in Scripture. This is the, the Old Testament worldview. And it causes us to ask the questions, well, where did evil come from? And when did God give man this evil task? And the answer to that is we go back to Genesis chapters 1, 2, and 3. Right? In Genesis 1, we read about God creating the heavens and the earth. There's no evil mentioned in chapter 1. In fact, the repeated theme in chapter 1 of Genesis is it was good, 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 and very good. But in Genesis chapter 2, we have our first occurrence of the word evil. In chapter 2, verse 9, it says, The tree of life was in the midst of the garden. And the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And in chapter 2.17, Genesis 2.17, we see God warning the man about the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And this is what the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. From the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Right? But there was another voice in the garden as well. We hear that voice in chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. This is a direct contradiction of what God said. Someone is lying here. 
For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. There's another lie right there. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired, was desire, was to, be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband and he ate. The choice to ignore God's warning and believe the serpent's lie is where this evil business began. God gave them what the serpent promised and what they wanted, what they didn't have before, but they now had the knowledge of evil. And knowledge in the Old Testament is more than just an intellectual understanding, it's an experience, right? This is what is crooked in our world. We still want to know evil. We still think that there is something there that makes us like God and makes us wise. We want to believe that we can go around God and find something good apart from his commands. But all our best efforts have no effect, no gain. That's the evil business. Now, we must be careful to speak about God in this passage. Satan lied when he said that we would be like God, knowing or experiencing good and evil, because God does not experience evil. James 1.13 says God cannot be tempted by evil, and he himself does not tempt anyone. Over and over, the Bible repeats that God is holy, holy, holy. He is pure from all evil. But he did put the tree of the knowledge of good and evil in the garden. He did that. And he allowed the serpent to tempt the woman. Why? That is the million dollar question, isn't it? That is the problem of evil. And what you think about God has a great impact on how you answer this question or how you think about this question, right? Those who trust God believe that he has a good and beautiful purpose in doing this. And now this includes Kohelet, the author of Ecclesiastes. A very key verse in Ecclesiastes is chapter 3, verse 11, where he says that God has made everything beautiful in its time. He's speaking of past tense. God has made this beautiful in its time from the very beginning, even with the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the serpent and everything that happens from then. God has made everything beautiful in its time. But in that in that verse, he goes on to say that we can't understand what God's doing from beginning to end. It's part of the mystery of our lives, but we have to take it by faith. Now, we'll talk more about that in chapter 3 when we get there, but in this first chapter, Kohelet is establishing that God has given us this evil business, and he's defining what our experience of vanity is under the sun. We know evil. And here evil is presented as being unable to straighten out what is crooked or find what is lacking. And this is our big idea for today. By God's design, no amount of human effort can straighten out this crooked world. By God's design, no amount of human, we might say fallen human effort, can straighten out this crooked world. 
So let's look at a few goads and nails. Remember last week we talked about the goads and nails. Uh, this is in the final chapter. He says that the words of the wise are like goads and uh, are, like, are like nails, right? So the goad is the shepherd's stick with the point on the end. You point the cattle to get them going in the right direction. And the nails are, are truths that we can, eternal truths that we can live our lives by. So the first goad and nail today is this. Give up any and all hope or trust in fallen humanity. I think that's what Solomon is trying to accomplish in this verse. Fallen humanity is not going to fix the world and make it a better place. It will continue to be the same crooked place it has always been until God makes it straight. And it's the height of human arrogance and pride to think that we can solve the world's problems without reference to God. Nonetheless, this idea is very prevalent in our society, and it is a primary opposing worldview to Christianity, especially in the Western world. We see this all the time in the media, Hollywood, politics, and on the university campuses. I've studied this a good bit in my life. It may have been more prominent in the 80s and 90s when I was growing up, but there's, it's still around today. This idea of progressivism in the political sphere. Progressivism holds that it is possible to improve human societies through political action. And, and progressivism is supported by humanism, which is kind of the philosophy behind it. <clears throat> humanism is a progressive philosophy of life that without supernaturalism, and this is key, if you read humanist documents, they, they make this very clear that, that belief in God is, a, is a, an ancient relic that's holding us back. We need to get people beyond belief in God, and then we'll solve the world's problems is kind of the idea. And so humanism believes that without supernaturalism, <clears throat> uh, there's a philosophy of life that affirms our ability and responsibility to lead ethical lives of personal fulfillment that aspire to the greater good of humanity. Thus engaged in the flow of life, we aspire to this vision with the informed conviction that humanity, here it is, humanity has the ability to progress towards its highest ideals. The responsibility for our lives and the kind of world in which we live is ours and ours alone. This is the humanist philosophy. This, I believe, is what Solomon's talking about when he talks about all work, no gain, okay? Now, I've put a chart here to just try to kind of visualize this. You know, I think the idea goes something like this. There was the big bang, we don't know why it happened or how it happened exactly, but there was this bang, life came into being, and evolution has just sort of progressed throughout millions of years, right? And we continue in this evolutionary progress towards a better and better and a more perfect world. The idea is we can make the world a better place. And this is one of my favorite quotes. I don't know if favorite's the right word, but no God will save us. We must save ourselves, right? This is the humanist vision of life on earth. Now contrast this with the Ecclesiastes or the biblical worldview, right? God created the earth, the garden, uh, very good, Genesis 1. And then in Genesis 3 and 4, we fall right? There's the fall of mankind, and then there is this, this static line of human history, which is called 
the fall into vanity, right? This is where the evil business is taking place, and nothing changes. It doesn't go up, it doesn't go down. It's just kind of this repeating cycle over and over again. Now, within this vanity, the book of Ecclesiastes was written, and, and Jesus came to the cross in the midst of this vanity. We'll talk more about this in a minute. But this is where we're at, and it's not going to get better until, as God promised that he would, he comes and restores humanity, new heavens, a new earth at the coming of Christ. So you see how these two worldviews contrast? This is part of what it means to fear God. Mankind needs to understand his proper place. Man does have great dignity being made in the image of God, but we must not think more highly of ourselves than is right. We are fallen, helpless, and weak And we can do nothing apart from God, especially when it comes to solving the problems we have caused in our rebellion against God. And so we must have realistic expectations. And this is part of the wisdom of Solomon, right? If we have too high expectations of of humanity, it's going to result in disappointment, dissatisfaction, Weariness, right? These are the things that we experience when we have too high of an expectation of mankind, but it is wise not to trust and hope in mankind. No human has the secret sauce. I've been focusing on liberals here a little bit, but conservatives don't have it either, right? Conservatives look to the past, maybe like when, the, when our founding fathers were, were starting America, or at some Christian point in our past, we think if we could get back there, then life would be better. Liberals look to the future, conservatives look to the past, but neither the past was nor the future will be better or worse. It's all the same. Generation after generation will have the same experience. So give up all hope in mankind, ushering in some kind of higher existence. I think that's the big takeaway from, from Ecclesiastes 1. Now, the second takeaway we have, though, is put all hope and trust completely in God through Jesus Christ. Now, I'm going beyond Ecclesiastes here, but I have to do this because we live on the other side of the cross, okay? Ecclesiastes will, really isn't a book of hope. It really isn't. We'll talk about that as we go through the book, but it's just trying to explain the way the world is. But God has acted in history. And Ecclesiastes lays the foundation for the gospel. It makes us long for the kingdom of God. It makes us ready for Jesus when he came to earth and he said, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. Yes, that's what I want. That's what I need. That's what I'm longing for. You see, the first words Jesus taught us in Matthew, in his Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew 5, 3 through 5, were these. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. Blessed are the humble, for they shall inherit the earth. Ecclesiastes 1 kind of develops this kind of character within us, a poverty in spirit. The word poor means bankrupt in spirit, means destitute, having nothing to offer. Those are the ones who inherit the kingdom of God, mourning over the evil that happens under the sun. 
and humbling ourselves to admit that we can do nothing to fix the world without God, the humble will inherit the earth. These were the words of Jesus. You see, Ecclesiastes gives us the wisdom that leads to salvation through faith in Jesus Christ. On the cross, God began to straighten out what is crooked. And in Christ, we begin to get a new heart. This is what Romans 8.23 says. I know some of you have told me this week you're you're working on memorizing 8.23 on the back of these uh, bookmarks. That's great. I hope that's a blessing to you. And part of that passage is is, is verse 23, right? And not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves, grown within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. Right? So we have, God's begun to work in us. We have the first fruits of the Spirit. We see his work. He's beginning to change us. He's beginning to transform us. And yet, we still have this longing. We're still eagerly waiting for the final redemption of our body. That's what we fix our hope completely on. And so the third and final thing I want to say today, and and this is a little preview of what's coming, but live the better way. And this is what we're going to be talking about as we go through Ecclesiastes. How do we live in this in-between time? Still living within this vanity of a fallen humanity, longing for the restoration of all things, and yet yet God's beginning to work in our lives. One of Solomon's favorite phrases, if you've been reading through Ecclesiastes, is better than, right? You see this over and over again. He'll say, I, nothing, there's nothing better than this, or this is better than that. And so this is what the way of wisdom is. It's the better way to live within the vanity. That's the wisdom we want to take away from, from Ecclesiastes. How, what's the best way? How can we make the best of this situation that we're in? It starts by fearing God, recognizing who he is, and having a right understanding of ourselves in relationship to him. But then we can have a good effect on at least a little part of the world around us, right? We don't want to think too highly of ourselves. We don't want to think that we're going to fix the problems of the world or we're going to make any big, significant change. But we can affect our spouse. We can affect our children, We can affect our friends. As a church, we can affect one another. Hopefully, we can affect our community around us, right? Like Abraham, we can experience God's blessing, and then we can be a blessing to others. In Ecclesiastes, this picture will, he'll define, he'll describe this picture as being joyful and doing good. That's what Solomon wants to get us to be. be. Be people who are joyful and committed to doing good. So, from chapter 1 this morning, don't be too optimistic, don't be too, pe- too, too pessimistic, be realistic. Understand the evil business that God has given us to humble us and to prevent us from thinking that we can get around it with him, without him. Remember, by God's design, no amount of human effort can straighten out this crooked world. Understanding and accepting this first observation of vanity in Ecclesiastes is the first step of fearing God.